We are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're coming to the end of that Gospel as we've been looking through discussions uh, in, in the themes of it related to the Sermon on the Mount. The last two weeks, we looked at the signs of His coming and the parables of the Lord's return. And I'm going to be doing a series on that particular issue, the uh, issue of end-time events and their sequencing, uh, when we're done here with Matthew, which we'll probably finish next week. Um, now, the next three chapters, we'll do one this week and two next week, are really narrative and the events are more a historical explanation of what's going on than teaching. And so it's difficult to uh, address that without pulling things out of context. I don't want to do that. Uh, but the, and also the material is very familiar with, to us because it's about the uh, betrayal, the Last Supper, the betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, the the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, we address those uh, in the holy days uh, constantly. So I wanted us to look at a little different perspective on this text. And I've entitled the sermon God's Plan and Man's Plan because these seem to be juxtaposed in this chapter. So I want you, before we look at that chapter, I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Uh, because I think it gives us a theme by which we can uh, take a look at this. In Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Uh, now, you could interpret that as saying that we plan something and the Lord is working while we're making our decisions. Sometimes the Lord is working despite the decisions that we make. This is one of the reasons that James tells us, uh, don't be saying we're going to go into this city and do this, and that city and do that, but say if the Lord wills, we're going to do that. Because the reality is, while we as Americans have a great sense that we can plan our own life, and that if we don't plan, if we don't, um, if we fail to plan, we plan to fail, uh, which is cute, but it is not a biblical concept. It's an American, radical, individualistic, success-oriented uh, mindset. So I want to talk about the plan of God and the plan of man as we see them in chapter 26. Now there are 75 verses. If I talk about each of them, we will be here for months. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to look at each of the little sections, and I'll just say a few things about it, trying to point that out. And then if you want to talk more fully about it, we can do that in the Q&A at the end. So we're going to begin with the first five verses. It says, when Jesus had finished all these words, that is, Matthew is tying this to what Jesus had done in talking about the destruction of the temple and his return and the end of the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation and all those events. And I'm telling us, you be ready because there's going to be a delay. And if you begin to not be prepared like the foolish virgins or other of the parables, uh, then you will miss it. And if you think the Lord is not coming and so you begin to live as an unbeliever, you're going to come in the judgment as an unbeliever. So then he says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, 
and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Right in this first part, we see the plan of God and the plan of men. Jesus tells his disciples, who still don't have a clue what's going on, uh, that's comforting sometimes, <laughs> uh, that he is going to be crucified at the Passover and that the chief priests are going to turn him over to the Gentiles and he will be killed. He's told them that several times throughout this book. In one case, in Matthew 16, when he says that he's going to be killed, Peter takes him aside and says, that's not going to happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't care about the things of God. There's a struggle here between what God is doing and what man is trying to do. Now it says the chief priests get together. Having a little trouble with the uh, heat and air, I guess. The uh, chief priests get together and they say, look, we're going to get this Jesus and we're going to kill him. But the people think he's something. And uh, remember that they uh, called out, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord when he entered. And so they don't want to cause a riot. Now, if the chief priests get what they want, then what God has planned won't happen. I don't have to tell you who's going to win in that. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that the humans are making their plans. God is making his plan. And the plans of humans are not going to override the plan of God. That ought to be comforting to you. So uh, that's where we're going to look through this. So now we pick it up at verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper... Obviously, Simon's no longer a leper, or people wouldn't be there, right? Uh, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial in very of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head and, as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. Therefore I say to you, whenever, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And of course, we just did that, right? Now, I want you to catch what's going on. God is doing something. He is preparing for the sacrifice of his son, who is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, to, to take away the sin of Jacob and of the whole world. This woman gets it. And she anoints Jesus. And his own disciples are going, wait a minute. We're supposed to be taking care of the poor. 
Now, the reality is they're supposed to be taking care of the poor, but there are other things going on here. There's a tendency to think what we think about and what our perception is, is all the perceptions. And sometimes those that we think are doing something that doesn't make sense are in much more cooperation with what God is doing than we are. And that's something I think we need to think about, that the plan of God... Is not, we're not always on the committee, right? Uh, if I was on the committee, God's plan probably would have been changed. That would not have been good, right? So the reality is uh, God has his plan and um, people are not catching it. So we see here the perspective and priority of God, which is on the burial of Jesus. And the disciples' perspective on the expense of the oil could be used differently in different ways. I am, uh, I am one who has often been critical of uh, money spent in the context of uh, religious facilities and items like that. Uh, I have not been critical of what they've done in sanctuaries. I've been critical about what they've done with barbecues and playgrounds. Because when a church builds a barbecue and a playground, they're building it for themselves. That's okay. But that does have a different priority than care for the poor, as opposed to that which is done to worship and glorify God. And while there is a connection to those, I think that that focus is different, and that's part of what is being said here. Now, we then move to uh, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and he said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him? The word betray there is not, um, is not in the text. It's actually a word that means to hand him over. Well, in order to hand him over, he has to be betrayed in that sense. But the reality is, they want him. Uh, I don't know if Judas knows they want to kill him. Uh, but he's willing to turn Jesus over. And they wait out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then, he began looking for an opportunity to deliver Jesus. So I want you to see Judas's plan. His plan is to get Jesus to the, the chief priest. It's important to understand that uh, people vary in their idea about what's going on with Judas. There are people who think that Judas is thinking that if Jesus is actually examined by the chief priests, they will see who he is and do that. And there are others who think that Judas is out for himself. What I want you to keep in mind is it really doesn't matter what his motivation is because God's plan is always going to override the plan of man when it comes into a conflict. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, what's going on here? Uh, we're looking at a text where... The disciples are thinking, it's Passover time, we have to have a Seder. 
Jesus doesn't say that. He says, my time is near. Jesus is on God's plan with God's perspective. And the disciples are just doing the yearly routine of the Seder. Okay? Now it says that evening, Jesus was reclining at the table with his twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me or hand me over. Being deeply grieved, each one said, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, It is he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl. He is the one who will deliver me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was the one delivering him over, says, Lord, surely it's not me. This is why some people think Judas didn't know what he was doing. Okay. On the other hand, in a public setting, a lot of people who are treating people badly go, I'm not doing that, right? And the Lord said, you have said it yourself. So if he didn't know, he then knew. Now, again, we have a situation where the chief priests want Judas to turn Jesus over so they can deal with this quietly, not on the holy day. God knows that he's going to do this in conjunction with the holy day so that Christ, our Passover, will be sacrificed in that context. And God is working all things for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose, even though all the people are making their own plans. So we move now to verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, this fruit of the vine, from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this text is familiar to us because it's one of the gospel accounts of that Last Supper when Jesus takes the bread and he takes the cup. Luke gives us a much more detailed account of it than Matthew does here. And Matthew includes Jesus saying, I will not drink of this until uh, I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. With Luke's, with Luke's understanding of this, there's kind of a key because Luke refers to the cup before the supper, which is the second cup, you guys know that, the cup of judgment. And Jesus says, you drink all of it. That's the cup that has to be completely drunk. And he says, I will not drink of it until I drink it in the kingdom. Now, that cup is the cup of judgment. That's the cup Jesus is referring to in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass for me. But here Matthew is also tying in the third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so we get a little bit of the 
mention of the afikoman or the, the bread and the cup, both in that he takes our judgment and he becomes our salvation. God is working his plan, even though the disciples don't really know that plan of God. Verse 30, I ended with, uh, that's the end of that series, but I want to pick it up there again. After singing a hymn, there's always a praise at the end of the Seder, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me on this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter says, even though all of these guys fall away from you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Boy, this reminds me of church meetings. (laughs) We all agree we're going to obey the Lord, right? We're all going to do it. We make plans, and we intend to keep those plans. But we don't always keep those plans. God makes a plan, and God intends to keep that plan, and He keeps it. The the back and forth here is pretty clear. And so, uh, the idea is that Peter is, and I think he's absolutely sincere... I think that Peter believes that he's not going to deny, and if those other guys do, he's not going to do it. Peter is pretty strong in his convictions. And many of us are that. We have, some of us have personalities that say, I don't know if I can handle it, and others say, I can do it, right? We, we have that mindset. And somehow, this culture tells us that that mindset is what makes the difference between whether you do it or not. And that's really not the case. So, he says, the scripture then says, Jesus came to the garden of Gethsemane, or the place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Why is Jesus distressed? He knows what's going on. The disciples do not. He says to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, what have they just said? We're not going to deny you. We're not going to be scattered. We're with you. We got your back, Jesus. Right? We're going to be there. And Jesus begins to manifest that he is very, very concerned. So you would think that they would pay attention. He leaves some disciples here. He walks a little further. He leaves Peter, James, and John here to pray because they don't hold hands and do a kumbaya thing. They pray and he, they're agreeing with him in prayer. He goes a little further, technically kind of in the closet to pray. And he says, 
It says, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup, that judgment cup, pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I don't want my will. I want your will. Right? And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you guys cannot keep watch with me an hour? You could almost see him say, You're not going to deny me, but you're going to fall asleep. Keep watching and praying so that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, that verse is something... uh, there, There are certain things that we need to be reminded of regularly. I think that's one of the reasons why in synagogues they have no before whom you stand, as we have here above the ark. A reminder that God is here. And that we, what we are saying, we are saying in God's presence. The spirit is willing. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about our human spirit, our mind, our determination, our volition that says, I will not fail you. I will not break. I will be there. I will do it. And we really mean it. But we get tired. And we get hungry. And we get distracted. And we get busy. Because the flesh is weak. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God does in sending his son. In other words, we have a problem. To will, Paul says, is in me. But to do it, I find not. What I want to do, I don't end up doing. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. There is a battle between the spirit of man and the flesh of man. The flesh of man is part of that temptation that happens. So Jesus says, pray that you'll not enter into that temptation. He goes and he prays again. Father, if, it, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. I love that phrase. I see that uh, at the university all the time. I get students, Dr. Bergen probably knows this too, you get students who are sitting there and they're doing, they're doing this. They, they're not hearing a thing. They're not asleep, but they're as good ass, Right? Just uh, And you've all been there. You've done that in a theater. You've done that in a class. Maybe my class, don't tell me. Um, you've, you may have done it in here, right? We, there are times when somebody wants to tell you something and you just don't. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? So he left them again and went and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Jesus now knows he's on his own. He had told them this would happen, so he knew it would happen. He's not surprised. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So get up, let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So at this point, what's happened is, uh, there's going to be a confrontation between the will of man And the will of God. So we're going to pick it up at 47. While Jesus is still speaking. 
Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was handing him over gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss is the one seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus, said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who with Jesus reached and drew out his sword had struck the slave with the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, Put back your sword in its place. For those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he would at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. But then, how could the scripture be fulfilled, which says that it must happen? And Jesus said to the crowd, You've come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Every day I was in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then the disciples fled. The shepherd is now being struck. And there. notice something in this whole text. What God has written is being done. And every plan of man is either being thwarted or it's being conformed to the plan of God. You see that? I mean, we read these things and we get on the story, but we don't see that no matter who the player is, you can imagine, oh, they're going to take Jesus? Whack! That's not helping God. The spirit is willing that the flesh is tried, right? But it's not there. God is working out. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes what we plan We'll work with God. But he's not dependent on us. And sometimes what we do, he will change. And sometimes what we do, he will thwart. But nothing that he does will be altered. That should be comforting. It should be comforting that it doesn't depend on us. It depends on he who promised and if he did this, even when the disciples were told, probably we're going to get it wrong too. And when things don't go the way we plan, it doesn't mean God has abandoned us or failed us. It means that our spirit is weak, his spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And sometimes we don't really know what we're doing. I love this verse. Don't you know I could ask for 12 legions of angels? It's a great old hymn. He could have called 10,000 angels. But he says, my father would do it. But then how would what's written be fulfilled? Jesus is willing for God's plan rather than his plan to go forward. That should be our prayer too. It's not an easy prayer to pray. Lord, not my will, but thine. Because my will makes sense to me. It may, I think, God, you should consider this. This will be helpful, right? The reality is I don't know what I don't know. And he knows what I don't know. And far more. And so, 
Lord, thy will be done, is a great prayer. Same thing with, you could have taken me in the temple at any point. I was out in the open. But you're doing it secretly here because you're fulfilling scripture. You can make all the plans you want. It will go the way God says. Verse 57 says, They seized Jesus and led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Peter followed him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered in and sat down with the uh, servants that were uh, to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. Now, God's plan is for Jesus to be put to death. But he's not going to be put to death the way they want it done. It's going to be done the way Jesus and God wants it done. So he says, they did not find any. They tried to find these things. Though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now Jesus never said that. Uh, He said, if you destroy the temple, I'll build it up. He didn't, he's talked about the temple of his body being destroyed in three days, not the temple, right? Uh, The high priest stood up and said, you're not answering. What is it that these men are testifying against you? And Jesus isn't answering. Because this is not going to go the way the chief priests want it. But it is going to go the way they want it, but not on their terms, on God's terms. So, he finally says, I command you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Two things. You will see me sitting at the right hand of the Father, which is where I will ascend, and you will see me coming in my glory. Now this sets the high priest off. It's fascinating to me, I always think in the book of Acts, when Stephen is being killed, he says, I see Jesus. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, confirming what Jesus said. And they rush him, right? Because they don't want the plan of God, they want their plan. And so, uh, the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. He hadn't blasphemed, he said the truth. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Okay, we got it. Right? What do you think he deserves? And they say death. They spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? I got to tell you, I am bothered by the crucifixion. It, It wrenches me when I think of what was done on the crucifixion. But the taunting that was done before the crucifixion 
overwhelms me. They put the crown on him. They beat it in with a stick. They slap him from behind. Okay, you're a prophet. Who's, who hit you? Spitting on him. And he doesn't do a thing. Every fiber of my being wants to fight back. When there's abuse. Particularly when it's inappropriate. Jesus is willing to endure all that hatred of men. For our sakes. That is amazing. The plan of God is good. Our plans are not that good. Now Peter sitting outside in the courtyard and the servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. He denied it before them all and said, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out, another servant girl saw him and said to him, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath and said, I don't know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, You have to be one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me. And he wept bitterly. We, we need to be careful about bragging about what we're going to do for God. There is a tendency for us to get worked up. And we're going to win the world for Jesus. And we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Because the spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. And the reality is God is working in all things for our good. What he's really asking us is to obey him. To trust him. That he will accomplish it. And obey him in the things that he's telling us to do. That's not very glorious in our mindset. But the truth is, it brings glory and honor to him when we obey him. There's a great song about somebody with an ego for God. And the rebuke at the end is, If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. God doesn't ask anything of us that he doesn't give us. So where is the boasting? Our boasting needs to be in the Lord. Uh, there is a, a need to be humble before God and to understand that. The plan of God is to make things work out best for us. Well, let me say it first this way. Our plan is to make things work out best for us. But we're unable to actually do it. Those who plan evil, it won't stand against God. And those who seek to do good will probably not accomplish it. Because our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak. But the plan of God is to make things work out best for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose.
At times, He will actually make use of us to have an effect in other people's lives. That's how we minister to one another. But none of that has come from us. It's come from His gifting and His goodness. What a blessing when God uses us in His plan. But we must always remember His plan is not dependent on us. I think of the words that Mordechai said to uh, Esther. He said, The Lord will surely deliver His people. Whether you do this or not. But who knows? Perhaps you're in the kingdom for this time. I want you to catch that. She was used greatly by God. But not because she was great. But because she stayed faithful. God would still do his plan even if she had not. What a comfort to know that that which God has established will come to pass. Nothing will stop it. And to know that in our obedience, we can be part of that and to not feel so important that we think God is dependent on us. We certainly are dependent on Him. Let's pray.